the final instalment of our work through the little Bible book of Jonah. We're going to read uh, and focus ourselves on chapter 4. But we'll take our reading from uh, Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10 first. I'm reading from uh, New American Standard today, so it may be a little different from uh, the version that you have. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10 through to the end of chapter 4. It says, when God saw their deeds, that's the deeds of the Ninevites, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish. Since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. But the Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God designated a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? And then it finishes. Now, if you did what Steve encouraged us to do in week one of this, which was to sit down and do your reading of Jonah from beginning to end, you come to the end and you're just scratching your head, aren't you? You're wondering, is this something that Jonah has written uh, in the third person as he looks back on this experience that he went through? And I wonder if that might help us with an understanding of his prayer in chapter two, which is written in the past tense. It says that he prayed out of the, uh, the belly of the fish. But the, the words are in the past tense. So was it Jonah when he was reviewing this later and he's recording it? We're not told who the author is though. There's a lot of things that when we get to the end of the book we're scratching our heads about. There's so much in this as we've covered over the last four sessions and we will today. And it shows you the importance sometimes in reading not sometimes, in all times, in reading some of these smaller books that are given to us from beginning to end, just so that you don't run into the problems of maybe making an interpretive 
decisions early on when you're focused on that without seeing how the thing ends. Because when we get to the end of this, you're really wondering who this guy Jonah is. He's a bit of a rogue, isn't he? There's so much in it as well that is probably mocked by people. But we know, and this is always a helpful thing for us to see, when the Lord makes reference to something in the Old Testament in his teaching, you know that brings in the truthfulness of it and its reliability. I just point you to this, and uh, you can make a note if you are making notes. In Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, when the people come to the Lord Jesus and say, show us a sign, he says, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. No sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as, and then he quotes uh, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster, for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. In Luke's account of it, he says in Luke 11 verse 30, the Lord says, for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation, the generation in which the Lord himself lived when he was here. That elevates the status of the importance in the sense of this book, though we can't really um, say that about anything of God's word. Any little bit of God's word is as important as any other bit of God's word. But whenever a book like this that has this big fish that swallows a man and so on, and it gets sort of pushed out as being fanciful and uh, just something ridiculous. But when the Lord brings it into his teaching and says it's representative of what was going to happen to him, then that means this little study has been well worth it for us. Jonah's experience represents the Lord's death and resurrection. Jonah himself, in what would appear to be a resurrection, as he might have been viewed by the Ninevites when he got there, as the Lord says, he was assigned to them. So not only was his message important, but he himself was assigned to them. And the Lord was saying, I will be assigned to this generation through my death and resurrection. And he was appealing for them to get past their blindness. What else can we say about the book of Jonah just in, in summary as we come to a conclusion here before we dive into this chapter? I think Jonah's experience also would portray, given this was in the Old Testament part of our Bible, the Tanakh, which was the Hebrew scriptures, Jonah also experiences, his experience portrays rebellious Israel. Remember, Israel is said by the Lord God to be his servant, the means by which his blessing would come to the nations. The promise given to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and to Jacob that through their seed the blessing would come. Ultimately that was in the person of the Lord Jesus. But the people of Israel were to be overflowing in their joy in being God's people so that it would overflow to the other nations. And instead we see Israel becoming so um, closed in on itself and so arrogant in its own identity even still today, and not um, wanting God's blessings to extend to anybody else. And that's part of Jonah's big issue, isn't it? As we've come across it here in chapter 4. Maybe Jonah's experience reveals our bad attitudes to us too. Our prejudices with respect to the gospel blessings that we enjoy and whether at times we might fall into the same trap as Jonah and the people of Israel and think, well, 
It's good for me, but I'll be selective as to who I should share it with. God's word, of course, reveals him. And that's ultimately what the book is given to us for. It's to reveal God to us. And we'll finish up with that at the end. To reveal God. Anything that God has given us in his word is to reveal him first. But also, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, as you look into the law, as he said to the Jews, or to the Old Testament, or to the scriptures, it's like a mirror to us as well. It's something that we hold up to ourselves and we see our own attitudes in there. That's how we come and approach this. So where have we got to in the story, just with those summary statements? Jonah, an already established and identified prophet. We've been there in Jeroboam II's reign, the northern kingdom. Um, He comes and he prophesies, as we're told, in 2 Kings 14, 25, that Jeroboam, even though he's a wicked king, is going to extend the borders of the north of Israel to where they were in the glory days of David and Solomon. So he has that promise, and that takes the extension of the borders up towards uh, the Assyrians. And then you have God coming to Jonah and saying, now you're to go to Nineveh, because the outcry has come up to me of their wickedness. And Jonah goes the opposite direction. Rather than heading east, 500 miles or so to Nineveh, because of his prejudice towards those barbaric people, which is what they were, and they were going to become even worse in a generation after this, he would not go that way. He went the other way to Tarshish, probably somewhere around Gibraltar, as far as they could go in the world at that time. We know this, and he went. He runs from his commission, but he's stopped on the way by the storm that God sends. He's thrown overboard because he would rather die than go to Nineveh. But God doesn't kill him. Instead, God preserves him in the great fish. And there we have this wonderful prayer in chapter 2, which is his recognition of the greatness of who God is. And God, as it says in 2 verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. You have all this coming together for Jonah. He comes to an experience of the mercy of God in his own situation. It seems as though he's come to that, then the fish vomits him out onto the land. And then he must have travelled the 500 miles because he receives the commission again to go. And this reluctant prophet, having gone through everything that he's gone through, heads off to Nineveh. And as we thought, he went into a city that would take you three days to walk across. Now, doing the research on that, it was a city-state, a number of cities that would have been joined together with Nineveh right in the centre with pasture lands and so on. So it's probably three days in extent from what would be recognised as Greater Nineveh, a bit like Greater Manchester. And it seems though it was one day's journey, and that's enough for Jonah. And he preaches five Hebrew words, which is all that we have. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And suddenly you have the greatest outpouring of God's mercy that is recorded for us in the scriptures. 120,000 people or more believe in God. The simplicity of that text that's there in chapter 3. When they heard this, they believed in God. That's verse 5 of chapter 3. The people of Nineveh believed in God. The greatest supernatural work of God in the whole story of Jonah is that. The salvation of thousands 
It's not that Jonah was preserved in the belly of a fish. That's a supernatural thing, of course. But that's nothing in comparison to what God does with guilty sinners. And he saves thousands of them in his mercy and his grace. The meagre preaching of one very reluctant prophet, witness sent by God who seems to be restraining himself all the time, He's not prepared to go to the bloody city as Nahum describes in his prophecy. He doesn't want to go there. But he goes. It would seem under duress. And God does an amazing thing. Now that's no excuse for us thinking, well we can give a a meagre message and then our reluctance to it. God will use, use his people for his purposes. And sometimes it has been reported that the worst of preaching can be the means of someone coming uh, to take hold of the Lord Jesus is their saviour and become someone great for God in his purposes. The people of Nineveh believed in God. That's the miracle. That's the astounding thing from this story. But then we get into chapter 4. So the people repent of their evil. Hebrew word is ra. And then you read 4 verse 1. And it says it greatly displeased. Ra. Same word. It greatly displeased Jonah. So the people of Nineveh who responded to the word of God through the prophet, limited as it was, it doesn't even tell us that he mentioned God in it. (laughs) But his preaching and their situation and Jonah as a sign himself, they responded and they turned from their ra, their evil. And yet you have Jonah in the midst of it all, somehow understands, maybe has been told by God that God has relented And he is evil in his response to it. That's the word of it. He's greatly displeased. Now, the reason I read the NASB is because I don't think the NIV we normally read conveys that in that strength. Greatly displeased. He's sitting there stewing in his, I don't know, his prejudice, his hatred of these people. And he's just seen a whole city from the king to the least. Along with all the animals, that's an interesting one. Um, The animals are the last thing we read of in the whole book. But the whole place that belongs to God, with the people who were guilty before God, by the preaching of this prophet, are brought to God and they believe in him. And God turns from his promised judgment. And what's Jonah's response? He's just completely consumed with wrath. His displeasure. And then he prays to the Lord the second time we've got a prayer from Jonah the first time was praying in the belly of the fish and actually that that prayer is quite quite a lucid type of thing you would you wouldn't think that's the sort of thing you would pray from inside a fish if you're honest would you and actually it's an interesting prayer because it's all borrowed from the Psalms every phrase in it comes from the Psalms so there's a lot of um, good stuff has gone into this, this whole account as it's been drawn together for us. But he prays to the Lord. Was this not what I said when I was in my own country? Here's a man who's just so consumed with his identity as an Israelite. And he doesn't want God's blessing to go anywhere near other people. So I fled to Tarshish. Tarshish doesn't get a good name in the scriptures. It was a place of wealth, gold and silver, horses. Solomon would send his ships there and it would take him three years to do the round trip and to come back with stuff. And as Solomon's wealth increased and his wives increased, then he fell from um, his position of responsibility and before the Lord to rule his people. 
the Lord will break the ships of Tarshish, it says in Isaiah. So it's almost speaking as though Tarshish is a place where you can go and the things of this world, they'll, they'll make your life. And Jonah, in his initial fit of rage, goes there. I'm not going to go there. In fact, I'm going to go far from God and I'll do my own thing. Thank you very much. He goes on in verse 2 of chapter 4. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God. He's quoting Exodus 34. We were thinking about it this morning in the remembrance of Nigel's Thanksgiving of when the Lord God passed by Moses at Sinai in the rock where he put him. And he caused his name to pass before him in all of his goodness of who he was. And he said, I am the gracious and compassionate God and so on. Jonah knows this. But yet the, the paradox of the whole thing and the struggle for us as we read this is he doesn't want this compassion of God to spill out to anybody else. Bizarre. <laughs> Please take my life. Verse 3. He would rather die than enjoy the believing response of the city. And God says to him, do you have any reason to be angry? You don't get the answer. Of course he doesn't have any reason to be angry. But Jonah doesn't seem to want to engage with God at that point. He will engage with him about a plan, but not about the people of Nineveh. Which takes us then on to verse 5. It says that Jonah left the city. Again, it's a choosing of the NASB for a reason here, because the NIV misses that, I think. It says he'd already left the, the city. But the sense of the Hebrew is that then, after this conversation in the first four verses, his prayer and, and so on, Jonah leaves the city and sits down east of it. He's aware that God has relented of the judgment that he said he was going to bring on the Ninevites because of their wickedness and their evil. They've turned from it. He's stewing in the juices of his own hatred towards these people, even though they have responded. And God has been merciful to them. And he goes outside the city. He'd been in the city while this had all happened. And he goes outside the city. Why wouldn't you stay there and enjoy the deeds? It's 3 verse 10. When God saw their deeds. Their lives were changed. And he's like, no, I'm going to take myself off outside the city. And he goes outside to the east and he makes a wee shelter for himself. It's almost farcical, isn't it? He's sitting there in the desert and it's hot. And he makes a wee shelter from whatever he can find. And he sits there and it seems as though he's going to sit there probably thinking that the Ninevites are not in any way genuine about their response to God's uh, promised overturning of the city and overthrow. Maybe he's going to sit there and he says, nah, they'll show themselves to be really who they are. Maybe he's going to sit there for 40 days, ready to see when God will bring his judgment. It is, you'd say it's ridiculous, wouldn't you? It's a, it's a hard one. But then it says God designated a plant. And this fast-growing plant with big leaves comes up and over and it provides wonderful shade for Jonah and the only point at which we find Jonah showing any glimmer of any joy is at this. And actually the Hebrew says he greatly rejoiced with great joy about a plant that had come up and helped where his own efforts had failed with his own little shelter. And there's a little lesson in that as well. He went off to Tarshish. 
where you could make your own life without God, with all the wealth that was associated with that, take yourself away from God's purposes, go outside the city in the blindness of your own view of the world, where you're resisting the whole thing of God and you build your own little shelter, but it's not enough, is it? God provides in his mercy again for this man. And the language says he, he designated this plant that grew up to save him, to save him from his discomfort. This is the glory of God. Jonah was overjoyed with the plant. And then God designates a worm. And here's our good God who designates something which in Jonah's experience, and we see this in our experience too, is something that then brings about a negative experience for Jonah. The plant dies. And it seems to his little shelter is rubbish because God then designates this scorching east wind that comes in. A Sirocco probably that comes in off the desert. And the guy is just sitting there. And again he says, I just want to die. He's got a death wish. Here's God's prophet. And he's sitting there, stewing in his hatred, stewing and boiling in the heat. And he just wants his life to end. I just want to say on that, this little worm that came that God designated that took down the thing that was a blessing. Sometimes the Lord does that to us, doesn't he? Where something that, as we perceive it, is a negative thing will come into our experience. But God is in control of it all. He's not the author of evil, we're told that. But he will permit circumstances. We're not immune from it in this world because of all the cause and effect that is built into the way life is. There are things that will come in that can take away things from us. And what's our response to be? Is it to be like Jonah? Oh, just, I've had enough of this God. Or is it to trust the God who knows the end from the beginning and knows that he is working all things for good for those who love him? And we trust him even when the good things might be taken away from us. If we want more on that, go and read about Job. Death is better to me than life. It's the third time he said it in the book. Or third time he's wanted to die in the book. You know, we see this with Elijah as well, don't we? Elijah the prophet. I was intrigued recently in doing a study in Romans 11 where Paul speaks of how Elijah appealed to God, pleaded against Israel to God when he thought he was the only man left and he was running for his life. And he says, I'm the only one left, God. Take my life from me. He didn't see what God was doing. God says, I have 7,000 others who've not bowed the knee to Baal. We can't see in our circumstances, what God is doing on the macro scale. Let's trust our God in all of this. And then God picks up with Jonah at a level where Jonah is prepared to engage with him. Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And uh, yes, I do have every reason to be angry, even to the point of death. What do we make of Jonah? It's, it's bizarre. I keep saying it. But God then finishes. When Jonah says death is better to me than life. I have every reason to be angry because you've removed this plant. I might as well die. The Lord then steps in and says Jonah. Do you realise what you're saying? You had compassion. Again a reason for choosing the NESB. You had compassion for the plant. And you didn't do anything to cause it to grow. Or to bring it down. It perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion 
on Nineveh, the great city to me, in which there are more than 120,000 people. God uses Jonah's reaction to the plant that goes away and to try and point out to Jonah how badly he is skewed in his thinking and his approach to the people of Nineveh. Should I not have compassion? Of course you should. God has compassion. Here's the God of mercy who extends his mercy to even the worst of people. We need to be guarded, do we not, from this attitude that Jonah seems to portray at the end of this and it just finishes and we're left wondering, did Jonah come round and then he was part of the writing of this or did Jonah just sit there and stew and stew and stew? We don't know. We're not to share the attitude of Jonah though, are we? Just say on the 120,000 people, some will say 120,000 people who can't tell their left from their right. Some might say that that's children because they've not come to the age of understanding the difference between left and right. That works with adults today as well, even. Some people have to do this and so on to try and work it out. But, um, but the, other, the other way of viewing it is it might be an idiom which just describes the population of the city that was so morally far from the things that God had described in his law for his people Israel and they were so barbaric that they couldn't tell what was right from wrong now we live in a society like that today that really cannot tell what is right from wrong because there suddenly is no truth anymore and therefore what you believe is is truth to you and what I believe is truth to me and you end up with this flip-flopping situation where what I consider is good and you can consider evil and we just have to agree about it that's the world we live in it could be that situation. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. If it was 120,000 children, then you have a population that would be between 500,000 and 600,000 people who believe in God. What a miracle of God's grace. 120,000 is remarkable. But maybe if it's pointing to us that here was a people that were so far from what God intended for humanity that his mercy comes to them Maybe that's the lesson for us as well. As we come to the end of the book, it's an irony, is it not, that the man that you would expect to have responded rightly to God is the one who does not respond rightly to God. Instead, you have the pagan sailors responding rightly to God. You have the people of Nineveh responding rightly to God. Jonah, it seems, does not respond rightly to God at any point. That's a challenge for all of us who claim the Lord Jesus as Saviour. Are we guilty of not responding to God as we should. So we're left with probably more questions and answers on this aren't we? It's one of those books that as I say is elevated in terms of its, its value if I can say that because the Lord refers to it. But I just want to say three things about God in conclusion just very quickly. What we do learn from the book is lessons about ourselves from the person of Jonah I think that's there for us as we hold the mirror up to ourselves. But what we see is God. And we see a God who is the sovereign creator of all things. He designates the storm and the sailors came to know him as the God who made heaven and earth through the things that Jonah said. And their response was to worship him. Jonah learned that God was the creator of all things and sovereign over all things as he was rescued from the experience in the belly of the fish. The Ninevites came to believe it too. They recognised that God was the one who had all power.
power and authority and they responded rightly. So God is the sovereign creator of all things and we see that God designates, God designates, God designates all the way through the little story. Right down to the little worm. God is in absolute control of everything. Secondly, we see that God is the righteous judge of guilty sinners. The sailors knew it. Jonah claimed to know it on the basis of chapter 2 and his prayer. And the Ninevite people came to realise it. That here we have a righteous God who has made all things and yet the pinnacle of his creation has turned away from him in rebellion and sin. And he has every right then to bring his judgment and justice to bear on them. So God is the creator. He is the dishonoured creator who has every right to bring his righteous judgment on those sinners, all of us, who have turned away from him. But thirdly, that God is the merciful saviour of all those on whom he will have mercy. And it's of all people, not just good people. In fact, good people are often the people most difficult to get through to with the gospel, that they're actually sinners before a holy God because our society would view that a goodness means everything's okay with you. The sailors, in all of their pagan idolatry, were saved. Jonah, even though he stands out as a bit of a rogue by the end of this, God saved him in his mercy, miraculously, in that experience in the fish. And the people of Nineveh, in their tens, if not hundreds of thousands, were saved, even though they are so contrary to the things of God, as they're described in history, but also in God's word. A barbaric people who you would think would be beyond saving, but they're not because God is merciful. God, our creator, who's every right to judge, is yet the God who shows mercy. See how great a mercy that God has given to us, as Peter says, that we should be born again. We're undeserving. We're no better than anyone else. But God in his mercy has come to us. And it's because of his great mercy and with the love with which he loved us caused us to be born again. We praise God for his mercy. As Jonah did say at the end of his prayer, salvation is from the Lord. We praise him for that. And we go forward wanting to avoid the attitude of Jonah, do we not? And step into more of an understanding of God and what that means for the people all around us. Let's pray.